This is an ABC podcast. Nissan Bolivinaka Tangohani and good morning. It's Eggy Dubol here and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Rwandri peoples of the Kulin Nation. I hope the week has been good to you so far. And let's get on with what is on the show today. Children in the Cook Islands are deemed the best at tackling the impacts of plastic waste. It's great working with kids because I feel like they're a bit more open-minded to wanting to make positive changes. And we'll get an insight into the 19th century influence of France and the life of French Polynesia. Globalization really impacted remote groups of islands like the Mangareva Islands in terms of imported uh, material culture, building techniques and architectural styles, just ideological changes. And we'll be discussing live the teacher shortage in Samoa. So more on any of these stories, simply stay tuned. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, though, two Guam government officials have been charged following a scandal around public school sanitation. In September last year, the Department of Public Health and Social Services allegedly approved sanitary permits for 15 local schools without carrying out proper inspections. Here's what one local mother had to say at the time. There's like black mold in the schools. The bathrooms are not in good condition. A lot of it needs repair. That school was supposed to shut down in 2022 because they weren't getting the funding they needed. So to bring us up to speed on the latest developments, we're actually joined this morning by Guam News journalist Nick Delgado with that. I say good morning. Hi, good morning. Yeah, thank you for joining us this morning, Nick. Really appreciate it. I mean, goodness, these concerns about school sanitation were actually raised back in September. Um, it's considered a scandal, as I said there in the intro, intro. So, like, how did we get here? And and who are the two officials that are actually being charged? Right. And so the allegations against these two officials, first off, it's the Department of Public Health here in Guam. The local director, his name is Arthur St. Augustine, and his chief health inspector, Masatomo, known as Tom Nadeau. So the allegations that we're speaking of go further back. And the indictment against the Guam Public Health Director and his inspector was actually handed down by a grand jury in the Superior Court of Guam over the summer, just on the 4th of July weekend uh, here in Guam. That indictment, of course, was stacked with more charges against the health officials by late August of last year. So just as the local education agency was balancing out, cleaning up the schools as much as they could, and at the 11th hour, setting that bell schedule um, because of the shakeup that's been happening, some students even had to uh, consider taking online learning. Others had to share campuses to coordinate double sessions. So in this case, the court case against the two health leaders, it isn't disrupting the learning for students, but it did take teachers and school staff having to spend out of pocket to make the classrooms as safe and comfortable as possible for the children. Yeah. Can you just explain a little bit more, Nick, around the, exactly what they have been charged with? I understand it's just an indictment, but um, you're saying staff, children, they haven't been affected. So is it simply just a financial issue? A financial issue among staffing issues as well, uh, and, and it's been a long-standing one for the local government here. So the health director and the chief inspector, of course, as I named, were the two named in the indictment, both since 
pleading not guilty to charges of obstructing governmental functions, official misconduct, and special allegations of crimes against the community. Now, the health director here, he also faces multiple counts of tampering with public records. That's the key charge here for both of these defendants. As I mentioned, the grand jury upping the charges against him. Prosecutors also noted an additional 15 counts of public records tampering, alleging that the local health director was unaware of certain Guam public schools that were passing the health inspection grades for inspections that they alleged never occurred. Uh, Now, initially, of course, the court documents stated against these health officials that there were three high schools that they were being cited for. And since then, that total has now increased to 15 total schools that they're eyeing, including more, mostly middle schools. Wow. Nick, I'm wondering, has there been any effect as to who, I suppose, blew the whistle? How did anyone even find out this was going on? And so this has been a long-standing discussion here in the island about getting these schools up to par to meet the health code and, and the standards. And so this just so happens to fall in the lap of the current administration now to discuss and find out what ways they need to repair the schools. And for some reason, the laws just didn't line up for this current director to meet those standards accordingly. And the chips kind of fell where they where they were. Mm. Uh, what's also interesting is... Uh, with the scandal, now I understand that the judge presiding over this matter, uh, Justice Alberto Lamarina, now he's been disqualified from this case. Why, why is that? Yeah, so it really was a back and forth between the, that Superior Court judge here in Guam, including the Supreme Court of Guam, looking at it. Ultimately, the defense for the health director, he contends that Judge Lamarina should have been disqualified because of his relationship with Guam's governor's Guam's uh, the governor's family here in Guam. Defense also pointing out that there was a campaign on social media made by the now attorney general at last year's election who named that judge, citing that the AG is the one as well prosecuting the case and would then be considered a conflict. And so ultimately, Judge Lamarana did fight against that claim of conflict. In the end, the health director got what he wanted. Mm. Uh, so then... Is there an expectation that a new judge will be appointed? And if so, I mean, can we expect a decision on that matter anytime soon? Uh, yes, uh, another judge, Judge Arthur Bersinas, also in the Superior Court here in Guam, has been appointed. No date yet, though, when the case will be back before him. Still, both the defendants, the health uh, director and the chief inspector, maintain they did nothing wrong. And even the attorneys said on record there was no crime committed. So now we wait to see when those trial dates could be set or even if plea negotiations could become fruitful. Mm. Uh, Nick, any response, though, from the community itself? I mean, obviously, we played that little piece out from one of the mums, you know, uh, saying the conditions of the schools. uh, But uh, what has been the response to this court case itself? Yeah, so uh, on top of what's happening with this court case, it, it seems that right now the focus is on making sure that the kids get the learning and instructional time that they need even considering the conditions that they're left and faced with. Uh, so, yes, on top of getting more time to meet with the health inspection codes for the for the local school department, they continue to clean up the areas in the months that followed the opening of school. Uh, the, the local education system has been waiting a few months now for mold mitigation, as you heard in that soundbite, where that mother's still claiming that there's mold in the schools. That still continues to be a lingering issue. But overall, leaders in the education system here know they got a tight deadline to work with. Either they make another attempt to buy them more time from local senators to meet those health codes or start shutting down schools that already struggle to pass 
uh, the health inspections. Yeah, has there been any involvement from government itself saying that they are going to actually improve uh, the quality of these schools with their sanitary um, conditions? I think what's the good thing and the good lesson here is that the senators here also ha- uh, have started meeting with the education leaders more monthly or if not twice a month to find out what are the updates here. The governor's office also trying to find funds and, and speed up the procurement process so that the the requests like mold mitigation does get expedited. But right now it seems for some issues like that, it's just not coming quick enough. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Nick, is there anything else that we need to know um, moving forward? Uh, right now, we just wait to see how this case plays out in the local court. Again, the health director and his chief inspector remain on the job. They're still responding uh, in the public eye and still doing their job at the same time in this court battle. Really appreciate your time this morning, Nick. Um, uh, appreciate the insight into this. And we hope that obviously everything works out, especially for the sake of our kids there. Most most definitely. Thank you for your time. No worries. That, of course, is Guam News journalist Nick Delgado here on Pacific Beat. Well, we head to the Cook Islands where environmentalists are tackling the plastics problem by asking school children in remote areas for help. The nation has no recycling facilities and plastic waste usually ends up as landfill in the sea or is burned in the ground. Te Ipukaria Society Director Alana Matamaru-Smith told Dubravka Volodia it's a particular problem in the outer islands and they visited schools in the area to teach kids about plastic pollution and what steps they can take to minimise it. Our plastics awareness raising program with our schools is all about talking um, on what the issues of plastics are given their durable long-lasting state that they have um, and then you know the the impacts that plastics have on our environment. They just don't break down like our organic leaves that we have around us. They stick around in our environment for hundreds of years and then the other impacts of burning plastics too it's you know in our culture here we we tend to burn our organic waste but sometimes um, this practice has then trickled on to burning um, other waste like plastics which of course isn't good for the atmosphere or for our health so yeah talking about the impacts of plastics but then also talking about what solutions, local solutions we have to reducing these impacts or alleviating the the pressures that we are facing on our um, landfills um, from plastics just building up with time. In terms of the areas that you are visiting, are there any specific areas you are targeting? Our school programs in the Outer Islands, if we're doing another project in the Outer Islands, we're also going to do our waste awareness raising project as well. So there is no real correlation with, with who gets a presentation on waste management or not. It just depends on how we can make the, the best most of our time and finances that we have. And how old are the children that you are targeting? Is it the whole school or is there a particular age group? The whole school is uh, introduced to the program. There's no discrimination when it comes to age and and the knowledge around this topic. So we like to make sure uh, all age groups are included in the awareness raising program. Primary and high school are both uh, spoken to. And you are saying that sometimes plastic waste gets burned. Um, Can you just give us a bit of an idea 
in the outer islands in particular, what does usually happen with plastic waste? Yeah, so we currently have no recycling facilities for plastic in the Cook Islands. So a lot of this waste, either um, some of my, some of it might get burnt or it just ends up in our landfill um, where it just builds up with time uh, and just does not go anywhere. It would definitely be an issue for our outer island communities. They don't have near as much resources as we have here on the capital. But in saying that plastic waste is still a big issue for our capital, um, we every bit of plastic made here just sits in our landfill. Um, there's no real... Uh, nobody's really wanting to recycle plastic waste at the moment. Um, so it just it just sits... And you've talked about solutions and that you are focusing on solutions with the children and with the teens. Can you tell us what some of those solutions are? Yeah, so try to keep it as simple as possible. We call these local solutions. These are actions that um, each and every one of us can uh, start with today. Uh, and that just being reusing, using more reusable products like reusable water bottles. Uh, we even have another program um, that talks about reusable feminine hygiene products that are available on the market today and how um, females can save money by using uh, reusable feminine hygiene products, but this also has environmental benefits too. Reuse, that's a key one. That's a, a cheap, easy one to do, um, as well as using, you know, likes of our margarine containers that we have. And instead of throwing those away, consider using them as lunch boxes um, so we can really get the most out of these uh, plastic products as opposed to just this throwaway culture of um, single-use plastics that we have today. What's the benefit of targeting kids? It's great working with kids um, because, you know, I feel like they're a bit more open-minded to wanting to make positive changes um, moving forward. We're still going to be around um, in the next 40 to 50 years. So, of course, we're going to want to make sure we're doing our part um, to making sure our environment is still still protected and looked after. So that's why it's great to work with kids. And, you know, we hope that some of the learnings that they take away from these programs um, can then, you know, be practiced at home where hopefully the parents will start noticing and taking on some of these positive behaviours when it comes to waste management. And that's Alana Matamaru-Smith talking to Depravka Volodier. Now, archaeologists in French Polynesia have shone light on early colonial life in the country, finding evidence of a pearl industry and that traditional marae were dismantled to build missionary settlements. It's a rare insight into what life was like in the 19th century when French Catholic missionaries were sent to secure France's influence in the region. Mackenzie Smith has the story. French Polynesia's islands traverse a vast area of around 2,000 square kilometres. And for James Flexner, an associate professor in archaeology at the University of Sydney, it's an area that's long been neglected by archaeologists despite a rich history. Last year, he led an expedition to the Elias Gambia or Mangareva Islands in the country's south. He says the largest island, Mangareva, is a natural site for archaeological work. 
when the French Catholic missionaries arrived in the 1830s, they started building, uh, they built churches, they built a cathedral in the main town of Rikatea, they built a royal palace for the family of Maputeoa, who's the first kind of king of the islands um, during that, that Catholic period. Um, <clears throat> They built a boys' school and a girls' school on separate islands, um, all kinds of other features, bread ovens, kitchens, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and it's remarkably well-preserved. Flexner says French Polynesia's landscapes have escaped relatively unscathed from earthquakes and tropical cyclones compared with its Polynesian counterparts. And in some cases, that's left stone buildings like the ones on Mangareva standing for hundreds of years. For Flexner, the buildings tell a story fraught with early colonial encounters. His team found traditional stone marae structures had been dismantled and the materials used to build churches and other missionary buildings. He says this may have been part of a broader effort to impose Catholicism on the local population. It's quite common in Catholic missionary practice around the world um, to, to build missionary buildings on top of existing sacred structures. So if you go to Cuzco in Peru or Mexico City or Cahokia in in North America, they're all, you know, everywhere you go, if there's a big pyramid and the Catholics have arrived, they've probably built a church or mission house on top of it. Flexnet says the team made their richest finds on the island of Akamaru, yielding over 1,500 objects, including fragments of gin, champagne and wine bottles. Albert Fahe, director of local cultural association Te Anaponga Mangareva, says the fragments are a significant find. It means that um, in Mangareva, during the missionaries' time, uh, we have uh, had, uh, and our ancestors, uh, our tupuna, our ancestors uh, have drank uh, this uh, kind of uh, of drinks, uh, um, champagne, wine. For Fahe, it's also a discovery that underscores the impact that European culture had on the Mangareva Islands. Today, we have no word. We have no lexicon. We have no word to translate uh, champagne in Rio Mangareva, in Mangareva language. And uh, yes, it's it's weird. It's uh, it's special because uh, during a missionary times, two hundred years ago, uh, our ancestors have uh, drank uh, champagne. Another important find for the researchers was a collection of pearl shells, which James Flexner says points to the presence of a local pearl industry. By the 1840s, pearl shells, traditionally used in French Polynesia for fishing lures, tattooing needles, pendants and figurines, were being harvested at scale and exported around the world. Flexner says his work in Mangareva has sparked a surge of interest among locals in the history of the islands. It's given us a kind of regular space to share results with the community, talk about what we're finding, talk about what kinds of projects we can work on together. There's a lot of interest in building a local museum, so thinking of how we can contribute um, 
our uh, not only materials, but also just kind of our knowledge and expertise. He says because French Polynesia follows France's national curriculum, they don't necessarily learn their own history. What we've done so far has really allowed us to see both the ways that globalization really impacted remote groups of islands like the Mongareva Islands in terms of the range of uh, imported uh, material culture, um, building techniques and architectural styles, and just ideological changes in terms of the ways that, that Roman Catholicism transformed people's spiritual lives. Flexner and his team have two more excavation seasons planned next September and October. And that's Mackenzie Smith reporting there. Don't go anywhere because up next we'll be heading into the region to get the latest with our news rep. Uh, that'll be presented by producer Liam Fox right here on Pacific Beat. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. That is right. We are heading around the region this morning to get the latest uh, on some headlines. And, of course, that is being presented by our producer, Liam Fox. With that, I say good morning, sir. Good morning, Aggie. Always good to catch up with you, Liam. Hey, look, we head into the first story where uh, Vanuatu's Ministry of Health is pushing ahead uh, with plans to recruit 100 nurses from neighbouring Solomon Islands. Why is that? Well, they, they, like many other places around the region and even, you know, more developed countries like Australia and New Zealand, they're experiencing nurse and doctor shortages and are looking wherever they can to recruit more. Vanuatu is on a major push to uh, get more nurses and doctors and it's uh, targeted neighbouring Solomon Islands. The Daily Post is reporting that the first 12 recruits have now received their appointment letters from the Ministry of Health. They, Most of them will be uh, working at the uh, Port Villa Central Hospital. Several of them will be midwives. Uh, two will be sent to Santo at the hospital there and another two to the hospital Montana. Now, the health ministry is hoping that another batch of 30 nurses will be recruited by the end of next month. Uh, that will include 10 midwives, uh, registered nurses, uh, general doctors, uh, one orthopedic doctors, and 12 intensive care nurses after that batch of 30 nurses uh, uh, is recruited. Uh, the health minister has said that Vanuatu still needs around 400 nurses to fill gaps left by retiring employees. As I mentioned, they're also going to be targeting doctors in the future. And I think what makes this interesting beyond the shortage that we know exists in many places is that the Solomon Islands is not exactly flush with plenty of nurses and doctors uh, either. And it'll be interesting to see 
what impact that's going to have on on medical services in uh, Solomon Islands. Yeah, I was just going to ask. I thought, hey, great for Vanuatu, but then (laughs) what gap and what hole does that leave for Solomon Islands? So it'll be interesting to um, keep our eyes and ears on that story. Thank you for that. Uh, Days after a group of policemen in Port Moresby, though, they were charged with robbing a liquor store. Uh, Looks like another cop is in trouble with PNG's capital for similar behaviour. What's happened now? I reckon it'd be a, a very tough job being a member of PNG's police hierarchy. Uh, unfortunately, these kinds of stories are not uncommon. Uh, according to all of the PNG media outlets, uh, a policeman, his female partner and two other men were arrested uh, on Monday for allegedly damaging an ATM in the, the the area of Rainbow in Port Moresby. Now, the police commander, Anthony Wagambi Jr., has said investigations are ongoing and that as well as any potential criminal charges, the officer involved will also be charged with the administrative administrative offence of uh, disgraceful conduct. Now, this incident has also prompted the police commissioner, David Manning, the top cop, to remind his officers they will be sacked if they break the law. He's been on a push to clean out the force, which uh, does not have the greatest of reputations. He has said that uh, he has removed more than 300 dodgy cops from the force over the last year, and that push will continue, even though it has reduced overall police numbers. They're looking to recruit a lot of uh, new police officers in the coming years to hopefully fill those gaps and the increased need right across the country. Yeah, that sounds pretty unfortunate, right? And just the last year alone, 300 dodgy cops. It's not a good track record. Uh, Look, let's head to some good news, though, because I believe there are reports out of Solomon Islands uh, that there's been a boost in tourists going to Western Province after uh, its new international airport was open late last year. What's the latest there? Well, that's right. Uh, we reported back in uh, October last year about the uh, the reopening of the revamped Munda International Airport. It's got a sparkling brand new um, uh, terminal as well as a, a longer and stronger runway so that it can take uh, bigger planes. Uh, there was a lot of anticipation back then. Uh, our story came out just before the official reopening. Uh, and now the Solomon Star newspaper is reporting that there's been a boost of uh, international tourists to Munda and the Western province, people coming from France, Germany, as well as traditional locations like uh, Australia and New Zealand. Uh, there's only anecdotal reports so far, so there's no hard uh, figures, tourist figures, but they're saying that uh, Munda and surrounds are bustling with uh, international tourists, which is great news uh, because it's something of a, a neglected area, not only traditionally, but also in the last little while where the focus in Solomons has been on the Pacific Games and a lot of uh, government activity and funding has been focused on holding those games uh, late last year. Um, so great news for Western Province, uh, I've been told, and, and others have said that it's uh, incredible diving in that area, rich in uh, World War II history as well, lots of wrecks and things to check out. So good on uh, Western Province. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and I highly recommend <laughs> uh, after going to the Solomon Islands, please, if you can get there and obviously help boost the, the tourists, all the tourism there in the country would be great. But Liam, it is always great to catch up with you. We will do exactly the same thing uh, tomorrow also.
Thanks, Aggie. No worries. Hey, look, stay tuned because we will be having this conversation about the uh, shortage of doctors since we've just been talking about the shortages around the Pacific region. Uh, that'll be coming up very shortly right here on Pacific Beat. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. You don't call yourself a comedian. Why why is that? Yeah, I just wanted to show everyone that I'm just being myself. If I make you laugh, that's just me. I'm I'm just making you laugh from being me. Tune in to Sisters Let's Talk Thursday mornings at 9 a.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Well, welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubo. Appreciate your company. Uh, we head to Indigenous residents here in tiny remote communities uh, that could be isolated for much of the wet season. They're appealing to the Northern Territory and federal governments to speed up the spending of $100 million that's been set aside to upgrade dilapidated local infrastructure. Now, the two governments insist they're spending the special funding as widely and as quickly as they can, as Jane Barden reports. As the Rupert Gulf Regional Council Mayor, Tony Jack regularly travels around the NT and interstate, but back home in his tiny Gulf of Carpentaria community of Wandigala, he's dismayed by the state of the infrastructure. We've got a major issue with our power system, big solar setup that sort of need urgent attention. It's running below 50% at the moment and getting worse. And what does that mean for the reliability of your power there? At night, the solar dies, so we've got to go start the generator. But I'm saying that I've uh, had the generator died on me last night. We got fridges now off. Our freezers are off. We got meat. We got to throw out now. And um, where we stocked up for the wet season, yeah, it's really chaos now. He says he's been pleading for funding to fix it for two years. I've been talking to all the government people. I've been talking to all the ministers and. Nobody don't want to work around this now. It's wet season and I can't believe it. We still got this issue. He's disappointed Wandi Gala hasn't got some of the $100 million the federal government committed to NT homelands at the last election. The federal government encouraged Indigenous people to leave alcohol and crowded housing behind in towns and go back to their homelands in the 1970s. So even though many of the more than 1,000 such communities across the country are on Aboriginal-owned land, the government's continued to provide some support to help reverse colonisation impacts and improve Indigenous health particularly in the NT, where about 10,000 people live in 500 homelands. Tony Jack says now many are dilapidated. A movement back to towns is increasing the NT's chronic crime problems. And that's where I, I believe now we've got all the problem where people going into town eh, and they got no choice but to move into town. Graham Smith, the CEO of Alice Springs Luratipa Traditional Owner Body, which runs a night patrol service, is seeing the same thing. These people are still coming into town rough sleeping because the investment in the bush is still not there. They can't go back to their ad stations because a week later they'll run out of food, power and water. They've got to come back into town. On woody Kapaldea homeland in the NT's daily region, artist Martina Parry is worried asbestos is crumbling from old houses. In this weather, wind is blowing right through the housing and we get water going into the inside of the house. We need new houses coming this year. You know, all them floorboards are rotting away. 
A spokeswoman for the Federal Indigenous Australians Minister Linda Burney responded with a statement saying that spending of the $100 million on homeland housing, power and water upgrades is well underway all around the NT, including on the Tiwi Islands, the Catherine region and Central Australia. The NT government is helping organise it. Chief Minister Eva Lawler. Probably is only a drop in the ocean of what's actually needed in our homelands. But my understanding is that that work is underway. They've got a plan around how that hundred million should be spent. Some of it's on housing, some of it's on road, some of it's on essential services. Mayor Tony Jack is worried there isn't enough money to go around. A new plan for when it runs out in 2024. I want to send a strong message to our federal members. You know, you were promising that hundred million dollars and the state government and all that here we all the homelands like myself and everywhere else we're still suffering so they need to do better and that's roper golf regional council mayor tony jack ending jane barden's report Now to Samoa, where the shortage of doctors is putting a drain on the Pacific Nation's health system. According to the World Health Organization, the perfect scenario of doctor-to-people ratio is one to a thousand. Hence, an urgent need to find 100 more doctors to help cater for the people of Samoa. It is influenced by various factors, but let's get an insight into why this is happening. We have on the line live a CEO for Ministry of Health in Samoa, Ayono Dr. Alec Ikeron. With that, I say Marole Soifua, Doctor. Marole Soifua, Aki. Good to uh, hear from you, and uh, also hello to all your listeners. Yeah, really appreciate your time this morning, Doctor. I mean, uh, look, the first question would be how did we get here, and why is there a shortage of doctors? Thank you very much. Uh, It's been a chronic problem, actually, it's been there all along. Um, there's a chronic shortage of doctors right across the Pacific, uh, probably more worse in the Melanesian countries like Papua New Guinea and the Solomons, uh, and then us. Uh, at the moment, our ratio is one in uh, 2,000 or 0.58 uh, doctors per uh, 1,000 people. Now, of course, that formula was from the World Health Organization, and uh, the formula actually uh, has a meaning in the sense that uh, when we meet the formula, that means that uh, we can deliver health services um, uh, equitably to all our citizens. Uh, So universal health coverage will be guaranteed. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have that number of doctors, and uh, we we haven't had any uh, of that number anywhere. And and in fact, we'll probably be chronically short for the foreseeable future. Yeah, because obviously... uh I read a piece where Professor Asiata, Dr. You know, Satsupaitia Viali, said that Samoa needs around about 200 doctors. I mean, and that's a bare minimum to cater for the number of people in Samoa. Is that a, a fair assessment? Uh, again, that is from the World Health Organization's formula of one uh, doctor to 1,000 people. We have a population of 200,000 people. So we should have 200 doctors. We have only 96 doctors working for the public service. Another part, for 40 doctors work in, in private service, but they're not fully uh, uh, engaged. So uh, it's only 96 doctors, actually, that will deliver most of the care across the, um, across the island. Uh, and uh, yes, that is a fair assessment, uh, but it's been there for a long time, uh, I must say. Um, I would like to stress also that uh, there's a shortage of doctors in Australia and New Zealand, and uh, some of our doctors from Samoa are working in those countries. So there's a, you know, there's a skill drain uh, right across uh, to other countries as well. 
but, but that's where the mobility of uh, the skilled workforce comes in. Yeah. And of course, with the shortage. So where are you looking? Uh, who are the countries or who are the people that are expected to come through and, and fill that gap? Well, as you know, we have two medical schools in Samoa, uh, so we are blessed with that. Uh, but the two medical schools are actually produced, so, so National University of Samoa and the Oceania University of Medicine produces about an average of eight doctors a year. But then we have an attrition of about four doctors every year. So those who pass, those who retire, and those who move overseas. So that's only a net gain of about four doctors every year. So even if we were to have, well, another 10 years, there's only 40 doctors. No way we're going to address the, um, the, the shortage. The only way, of course, is to increase the number of doctors being trained. And uh, the problem, of course, is that uh, there's strict entry criteria into medical schools. Uh, I've asked the National University of Samoa to lower the marks uh, a little bit for the entry criteria, because if we if we lower the marks too uh, too drastically, then those students won't pass the rigorous course. So uh, we have to look at other strategies to address this, and uh, those strategies uh, will be basically be encouraging our diaspora, our doctors who are working overseas, to come back to Samoa even short, for short periods of time, and uh, to, to work for us. So that's one strategy. And the other strategy, of course, is to empower nurses. Most of our workforce uh, will be nurses, and so therefore our nurses could actually take over some of the functions and roles that doctors uh, traditionally play. And uh, with uh, good training of nurses, we should be able to address probably 80% of the presentations to clinics and hospitals across the country. Doctor, can I ask, is, is it an attractive uh, occupation that, that you see students or people there in Samoa that are wanting to become a doctor? Is, is that a case where you're just not finding the people that want to get into the, into the industry? Well, we uh, do advertise, and uh, there are a few students, of course, who would like to be doctors. But again, only a certain number can get into the medical school because of strict entry criteria. But then uh, some of our very bright students uh, would actually uh, prefer to be engineers and other courses that will take them to Australia and New Zealand. So when there's a scholarship uh, uh, scheme or grant, uh, the bright students tend to uh, select courses that will take them overseas for training. Uh, they wouldn't want to pick courses that will actually um, get them to stay in Samoa. So that's one of the disincentives of uh, actually uh, delivering the course here in Samoa. Yeah. Doctor, the big question, obviously, I'm sure many people have asked, what pressure has this put on the current health system there uh, in Samoa? Well, it's a huge pressure, mainly because of uh, increasing expectations. Our people travel to Australia and New Zealand. They come back with expectations of what the service should look like. And so they come and uh, they look at the service and look at the facilities and they say, oh, you know, this is better in New Zealand and Australia. And so that puts, puts a lot more pressure on us as well. And uh, yet we don't have the workforce to actually address those expectations. But we need to rise to that. And uh, and uh, a good service is a good service. We know what this good service should look like. But uh, resources, of course, are, con- are constrained. And so, therefore, uh, we try to meet the needs as the doctors feel overworked, uh, the, f- the doctors feel overloaded. And so, therefore, uh, there's a fair amount of uh, sick leave as well. And I'm feeling that uh, that's due to stress. 
but that's the kind of thing that is expected, really, that when, uh, when the staff are overworked. Yeah, that is unfortunate to hear. I'm wondering, are doctors even being paid enough? Is it an issue that has been brought up? Well, we've just increased, the Public Service Commission have just done a review and uh, we've increased the uh, salaries of doctors right across the board. Uh, consultants are now earning up to 170,000 uh, tala a year, uh, which is about the equivalent of, uh, let's say, 100,000 New Zealand dollars. So uh, so that's a pretty good money really for the economy that we have. We, we can't pay people the salaries in you know in Australia and New Zealand, so um, so they are better paid than most uh, people out there in the public service, um, and uh, there's nothing else we can do really uh, to um, attract more or retain more doctors other than the salaries and the support that we need to give as a ministry. Yeah. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking to CEO for Ministry of Health here in Samoa, Ayono Dr. Alec Ikeruma, about the shortage of doctors in Samoa. Some have said, though, as the CEO, does this fall on you, though, and your ministry to fix this issue? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as the CEO, uh, you know, I carry the can. So uh, the, top, the, the buck stops here, as they say. So... Uh, so, yes, it's something that uh, we need to address, and uh, we are addressing that uh, all the time uh, with uh, with the Public Service Commission. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the political structure is also aware of that. But, uh, you know, again, we are constrained by the resources that we have and the capacity that we have. Uh, but, you know, it's something that we need to address. And uh, as I said, I'm looking at the nursing workforce as uh, – uh, um, an answer to this uh, because they can actually uh, meet most of the needs of our um, of our population. Doctor, what are actually some of the critical health issues there, though, that our people are facing in Samoa? Yes, there's a doctor shortage, but obviously that needs to cater to the amount of issues that um, our people are facing, right? Yes, uh, so uh, the most common problems, of course, is uh, NCDs. Uh, you may know, of course, that our life expectancy has, has risen, which is uh, a good um, outcome and uh, one of the markers, really, of a good uh, standard of living and uh, health service. Um, so we also have a reduction in mortality rates uh, in children. And uh, so uh, so there, there are some very good markers there that, that the health service is good. Uh, we can't uh, take all the credit, of course, because, uh, you know, uh, water supply and sanitation and, and uh, sewage are all the things really that are coming to play with that. Uh, but NCDs, uh, non-communicable diseases, uh, in terms of obesity, hypertension, diabetes, are uh, the usual things that comes with an increase in um, life expectancy. So that increases the burden uh, on on the on the workforce. The, the The main thing, of course, here is health promotion and education. We need to try to get our population to stay healthy, uh, and that's the main thing that we can do, really. Because when they stay healthy, then uh, complication uh, rates will reduce. And so, therefore, again, lessening the burden to the health service. Yeah, absolutely. Doctor, earlier in our show, we were talking about Vanuatu's own uh, recruitment drive. Uh, they've got a shortage there too. So I'm just wondering, what's the risk of uh, Pacific Islands uh, having to pillage each other's workforces? <laughs> <laughs> That's happening. Uh, that is happening. And uh, you find that American Samoa uh, – uh, has actually uh, pinched a few doctors from across the region, uh, including Solomon Islands, 
so we, 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 we tend to want to emphasize the need for ethical recruitment, uh, which we should not try to pillage and uh, to steal other, each other's doctors and workforce. But, uh, you know, people will move to where there's better money. And so, therefore, when American Samoa offers, you know, 50% more, 80% more than what they're getting, well, you know, uh, most people will move and, and, and we can't stop that. And so are you, uh, are, and, you are you looking um, at other Pacific Islands to, to recruit staff, though? Well, we are pushing out our ads. As you know, we are advertising for six specialists from overseas. Uh, so we have uh, radiologists coming from one of the Pacific Islands. We have a, uh, a psychiatrist coming from one of the Pacific Islands. So, uh, and, and uh, you know, they're answering our ads. And uh, so uh, the recruitment is yet to start. Uh, but uh, we're wanting really to recruit from India or the Philippines. Uh, and we have an ophthalmologist coming from India, so that's fantastic. But uh, yes, it, it can happen. Uh, people can move around the Pacific and uh, yeah. Nice. Uh, doctor, uh, I wanted to s- switch away because COVID is still happening too. I just wanted to get if there was an update because there was a report of 44 cases. Have you got any updates as to how Samoa's handling this at the moment? Well, we're very apprehensive, really, with the increase in Christmas traffic. Uh, there were, you know, we every week around the Christmas period, there were 7,000 people arriving in country. And uh, with the COVID wave in New Zealand, uh, we were very worried, really, that uh, that will come across. And we have seen an increase in the number of COVID cases in Samoa, however, and we have asked our population to come forward, especially those at risk, to come forward for their posters, because when our population is actually well immunized, then, you know, even with increasing cases coming to the country, uh, it shouldn't actually impact too much. And uh, I must say, though, that even though we've detected an increasing number of COVID cases, we haven't actually seen an increase in admissions into hospital because of COVID cases. So uh, that's a blessing for us. That means that the, the immunity from the vaccinations of two and uh, two years ago and last year are still there, even though that uh, the response to our recent booster campaign has been has been poor. Well, I mean, we hope that, you know, it doesn't exasperate anything else in regards to the health system there, Doctor. But final thoughts, though, moving forward, what is it that you would like to see sort of happen maybe straight away? Well, I uh, would like really to see an increase in the number of uh, students into the medical schools. Uh, So that's a a conversation that we need to have at the medical schools uh, to see whether they can take more students in. Uh, and of course, retention uh, is key. And uh, so with an increase in salaries now, uh, hopefully that will, uh, more people will be retained. I will be also looking at the nursing workforce to see how we can actually increase the comprehensive nursing training uh, so that uh, prescri- you know, nurses can prescribe drugs and, uh, and uh, step into roles that um, are normally done by, by doctors to try to meet, meet expectations and the needs of our population. Really appreciate your time this morning, Doctor. Just want to say for your time and we really do hope that there is some good progress in regards to the doctors there in Samoa. Thank you very much, Angie, and thank you for uh, your Radio Australia for actually supporting our efforts here in the Pacific. Absolutely, no worries. Again, that is Ayono Dr. Alec Ekeroma, CEO for Ministry of Health in Samoa. 
And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Just want to say a big thank you to our guests today. If you want to find our stories, they can be found at abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. You can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time, but I'll be back again at the same time tomorrow. That's 6am PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next, followed by Nisha Daily right here on Pacific Beat. Pacific Beat.